Good morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of being here together this morning. Thank you for the gift of being able to worship you with one another. We thank you for the gift of your word that we can read and talk about and learn from. And Lord, we thank you for your spirit that takes your word and pushes it into our hearts and into our minds uh, and transforms us more and more into the image of your son. So this morning, Lord, I pray that you would um, take your word and that you would do that, that you would help us to understand it, that you would illumine our hearts and our minds, and that you would use it to transform us. We pray this in the name of your son. Amen. Okay, good morning, everybody. Um, It's wonderful to be with you this morning. Uh, My name is David Buchanan. I'm one of the members here at Wellspring, and I guess now part of the preaching team, since this is my my second time. Uh, So uh, last time I preached was when we were in our old location, and I have to say that this is a very different kind of experience because in the old location, the stage was like really far away from everybody, and it was dark. And it was kind of like, you know, like a concert stage where there were like big lights shining on you, and I couldn't really see anybody's faces. Uh, Whereas here, I can see everybody watching me and stuff. But honestly, it's really, it's actually kind of nice. It it feels a lot less like a a performance and a lot more like um, I'm here with my brothers and sisters and and talking to them, which is really wonderful. Um, So today we are continuing in our series, At the Table. And in this series, we are um, exploring the major storyline of the Old Testament. So um, as Pastor Yumiko said last week, we're going to be going through the entire Old Testament, not reading every single verse, but trying to understand the big moments, the overall storyline. And we're doing it through the lens of um, a table, right? A place where people are brought together, where they share a relationship, where their relationship grows deeper. uh, And we're looking at these stories through the lens of this table where God is inviting his people to come and meeting them. Um, And each of these characters brings something to the table with God, uh, and in turn, God brings something else. So last week, Pastor Yumiko talked about uh, the creation story and Genesis 3, uh, and she talked about how when Adam and Eve disobey God, they have nothing to bring to the table except for their shame. Uh, And in return, God brings his love and his provision and the animal skins to cover their shame for them. Um, So today we're continuing uh, in Genesis. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 15, which is the story of the covenant that God makes with Abraham. Uh, And in some ways, you know, it's interesting, like the Bible obviously starts earlier than this, right? In Genesis 1 and 2 in the creation story. But I think In another way, the Bible really starts here um, because, you know, these first 11 chapters of Genesis, uh, you know, I tell my students, I teach biblical studies at Iolani, and I tell my students, really, the first 11 chapters don't actually really connect to anything else in the Bible, right? Like these characters come and they go and their story's over, right? Cain and Abel don't come back. Noah's Ark isn't mentioned again. But this moment in Genesis 15 between God and Abraham is the foundational defining moment 
for the rest of the Old Testament, right? For the rest of the Bible, where God enters into this, this relationship that the rest of the story is going to try and play out, right? So that's where we are today. Uh, and the theme for today is that Abraham brings his doubts to the table, uh, and in turn, God brings the covenant. So before we, we get into Genesis 15, um, just by way of background, God first appears to Abraham three chapters earlier in Genesis 12. Uh, and it, it's very abrupt in, in the flow of the story, right? God just kind of suddenly appears to this man who we don't know and says, hi, Abraham, you don't know me, but uh, I want you to leave everything behind and go to an unspecified place. And if you do, I promise that I will give you descendants and land and blessing. And then in this very sort of enigmatic verse, the text just says, so Abraham went. And there's no questions. Doesn't tell us how Abraham felt about it. He just goes. And so from that moment on, you're kind of viewing Abraham as this sort of uh, ultra obedient, super kind of paragon of faith, right? The thing is, when you look at Abraham's story, he often is like that. He often is extremely obedient, but he's also not morally perfect. Sometimes when I read these stories with my students, they ask, like, why did God choose Abraham? Because he's kind of a dirtbag sometimes, right? Trying to pass off his wife as his sister so that he doesn't get in trouble with jealous men, uh, sleeping with his wife's slave to have a child, stuff like that, right? He's not like a, by our standards, he's not a very great person all the time, right? Uh, and so... Even though Abraham is held up as this sort of paragon of faith, I think that his character is more complicated than that. And I think that especially here in, in chapter 15, um, we see that Abraham isn't perfect, right? He, he does question God uh, when he sees these sort of insurmountable problems in his life that conflict with the promises that God has given him. Uh, he asks God to explain, right, to, 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 to give him some kind of assurance, right? He's, he doesn't have perfect faith uh, here. So in this meeting, like I said, Abraham brings his doubts to this table with God and, and God brings the covenant. So in Genesis 15, when we, when we get there, Abraham has just gone through this uh, sort of scary conflict, this sort of battle with, a, with a, another king. And Genesis 15 starts in verse 1 with God giving Abraham this very general uh, restatement of the promise that he's already given him a couple of times, this promise of land, descendants, and blessing. So God appears to Abraham and he says, uh, don't worry, Abraham, your reward will be very great. Abraham has heard that before. He's heard it a couple of times. It's this kind of general, like, everything is going to work out for you. Uh, and Abraham's response is sort of twofold, right? First, he says, God, what will you give me for I continue to be childless? And then just the next verse later, he says, you have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Abraham is looking at his life and he's looking at it, comparing it to the promises that God keeps giving him. And he's saying, look, I am really old. My wife is really old. And you're promising these extravagant things, this great nation and all of these blessings. And 
it's not it's not going to happen right like it's the time has run out so someone who works for me is going to inherit all of my stuff right and i think abraham is just being pretty realistic right like it this just isn't this just isn't adding up you keep making these promises look at my life it's not going to happen and if you look at what abraham says to god there's actually kind of two moments right the first thing he says to god is kind of an honest question right what will you give me because I continue to be childless, right? That's a fair question. But then very quickly, before God even really responds, Abraham changes from the sort of question to a kind of complaint or an accusation against God, right? He says, you have given me no children, so someone who works for me will inherit my possessions, right? It's not just like a question anymore. Now it's like, you've, you've messed up, right? You haven't fulfilled the promise. And I think this is not the kind of Abraham that we see really anywhere else in his story. This is, as far as I can figure, the only time where God or where Abraham really uh, complains to God or, or accuses God of not keeping his promises. And that's like a little bit alarming, right? Because Abraham is held up as this sort of paragon of faith. What I would like to suggest is that... Um, this moment, right, where Abraham accuses God, where Abraham questions God, rather than being an indication that Abraham's relationship with God is starting to weaken, or that he's questioning it, or that he's about to leave it, I want to suggest that this moment of doubt and conflict is actually a sign that Abraham's relationship with God is becoming closer. Um, when you look at the Abraham story, the way that it's narrated in Genesis, Abraham goes through these series of 7, 10, 12, it kind of depends on how you count them, uh, these, these encounters with God, where his encounters get continuously more intense and more personal and more frightening until the very last one is when God, he, God asks Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. Right? So it kind of builds up to this really intense, super intimate, almost frightening closeness that Abraham has with God. And I think that this is kind of on the way to that, when Abraham argues with God. And the reason that I think that this is a sign that their relationship is becoming closer is because when we look at other individuals in the Bible, we find that the people who have the closest relationships with God often have conflicts with God. So, for example, uh, the character of Jacob, right? Jacob is not, um, when we first meet him, terribly interested in God at all, right? He, he only refers to God uh, in words that are in terms that make God distant, right? My father's God, uh, the God of my ancestors. He never ever talks about God as his God, right? So when God appears to, to Jacob in his dream and there's the staircase and all of that, Jacob's response to God's promise the same promise that he gives to Abraham is, okay, I guess, we'll see, right? If you keep all of your promises to me and you take care of me my whole life, then you will be my God. But I'm not making any promises. You, you live up to your end of the deal first, right? And that's kind of Jacob's attitude towards God. It's not until Jacob literally fights God, right? Like has this bizarre all night wrestling match with God that his life changes, right? And to show that Jacob has 
changed, that he's become a new person in his struggle with God, God gives him this symbolic name, right? And he renames him Israel, which means struggles with God. And Jacob is a new person after that struggle. Uh, I think another example would be the character of Moses, right? Moses is held up even, you know, later in the Old Testament as the greatest prophet, the only one who talks to God face to face, right? Who has this kind of super intimate relationship with God. And when we first meet Moses, uh, when Moses first interacts with God, God appears to him in the burning bush, right? And uh, I watched like the, the DreamWorks animated version with my students. Any of you guys have ever seen that? Uh, and in, in that scene in the movie, when Moses encounters the burning bush, God tells Moses to go to Pharaoh and Moses initially says no. And then there's this intense scene where God kind of explodes at Moses and knocks him to the ground and says, uh, who made man's mouth? Who made the deaf, the mute, the seeing, or the blind? And Moses is like, okay, all right, fine, I'll go. Right? In the text, it doesn't happen that way, right? God does say those things, but after he says those things, Moses says, yeah, I'm still not going to go, right? He says, like, I, I'm not good at talking. You should just send somebody else. And after that, then the text says, the Lord's anger burned at Moses. And you expect God to, like, strike him dead or make the fire explode and knock him to the ground. But instead, God says, fine, how about you take Aaron? I know that he can speak well, right? He'll speak for you if this is really a problem. And Moses wins, kind of. I mean, he still has to go, but, but God relents. God says, fine, you don't have to talk. Just take your brother. I know that he's a good public speaker. That's, you know, I asked the kids, why, why, don't, why doesn't DreamWorks have that in there? And they're like, well, it's not as dramatic. It's not as cool, right? And, and it's true, because Moses winning the fight is kind of like, oh, that was weird, right? Uh, the same thing, you get this same image of Moses even later, where, you know, God tells Moses, because of the Israelites' obedience, he's going to destroy them all, and he'll start again with just Moses. And Moses stands in this gap between God's anger and the children of Israel and intercedes on their behalf and talks God down. And God says, okay, fine, I won't kill them. That's, you know, Moses doesn't say, well, he's the Lord, let him do what's best. He, he argues with God. He intercedes on behalf of the people. And I think that, that those moments are uh, a sign that Moses cares, that Moses has this intimate relationship with God where they struggle with one another, right? I, I think that the point is that these figures struggle because they're deeply invested in their relationship, right? Uh, it's not passive. It's not one way. It's not one dimensional. It's a real authentic relationship where both parties are deeply invested in, in the other, right? Uh, and it's these kind of wrestlings, relationships, this struggle and questioning that we see in, in Abraham here, right at the very beginning of chapter 15. Uh, and I, I think, you know, in our own lives, I think our struggles with God are of a lot of different kinds, or, or our questions with God are of a lot of different kinds, or our struggle of faith is of a lot of different kinds. Sometimes it's like these really big, earth-shattering, am I even a Christian kind of things. But I think more often than not, it's, it's much smaller things, right? We, we wonder either out loud or maybe subconsciously if God really cares about what's happening in our life. Uh, or if God is really good, 
or if God really has a plan for our future, um, these kinds of things, right? These are like, I think, little questions that we might not even really voice even to ourselves, but we, we struggle with them, right? Um, you know, a moment like that for myself, which wasn't this big earth shattering thing, but it, it, was, uh, it was a struggle was when, you know, several years ago, I was finishing a master's degree at Boston University. And um, it was only a one year degree. So it was very quick. And towards the end of it, I had to figure out what I was going to do next. I had, you know, my wife and, and our son, William, and we were staying with my in-laws, which really felt like we got to like this. We have to find something, right? We can't stay here forever. So it felt like uh, I needed to figure out what we were going to do. And at that point, I had sunk eight years into higher education, right? College and graduate school. And the whole time, the purpose had been, I'm going to do a PhD. And towards the end of that, that master's degree, I applied to PhD programs and um, I, I didn't get accepted to any of them. So that was like, ah, uh, okay, that, that eight-year plan is not going to work out now. So uh, I started looking for teaching jobs, and that was not going very well either. There, there aren't that many schools that hire religious studies teachers. Um, and the ones that did, the ones who were looking for religious studies teachers said, well, uh, you have a lot of education, but you don't really have any educational experience in a high school. So no. And it got to the point uh, where I began to think more and more, this, this is it, right? I, I filled out an application to become a mailman because I was like, I don't, I don't know what's going to happen. Uh, and I was kind of, I was angry. I was frustrated that I had spent all this time and all this energy and effort. And I felt like this was God's plan and it wasn't working out. Right? And I, it's not, it wasn't a, a huge earth shattering thing, but I struggled with what God was doing and whether or not he really cared. Right? I mean, is this even a big enough issue for God to care about? Uh, and I think that if Abraham is any guide, uh, bringing those feelings of struggles and doubts and fears to God was, was a good thing. It was okay. The second thing that I think Abraham shows us here at the beginning is closely related to the first, and that is that the struggle for faith, the struggle for trust in God is not a problem for those who have never been confronted by God. I'll say that again. The, the struggle for faith is not a problem for those who have never been confronted by God. Like we often think of the struggle for faith uh, as something that implies unbelief, right? Something that a Christian doesn't deal with. But I, I think that it's actually the exact opposite. I, I would propose that it's often uh, the people who have encountered God who must then struggle in their relationship with God, right? What this moment of the Abraham story shows is that faith and the struggle for faith is precisely for those who have already heard God's call. Uh, it's only for those who have experienced the power of God's presence, who have heard the word of the Lord and have the opportunity to wrestle with God in this kind of back and forth movement of doubt and faith. So the fact that Abraham can even bring his doubts to the table with God shows that he already has a deep relationship with God, right? It wouldn't be an issue if he didn't know God, if he hadn't heard this call. Uh, so Abraham here at the beginning brings his doubts to the table. And what does God bring? After Abraham's complaint and his accusation of God, God responds in sort of two ways in the rest of the chapter. 
First, he responds with this very simple kind of restatement of the promise, right? He just says, oh, this servant won't be your heir. Someone from your own flesh and blood will be your heir. Okay. Then he takes Abraham outside and he shows him the stars and he says, so shall your offspring be. And that sounds really good, right? But if you look closely at that response, it's not it doesn't address Abraham's concerns. God doesn't make an argument. He gives no new evidence. He just repeats what he just said before, right? Abraham says, look at my life. Look how bad everything is. This isn't going to work out. I'm too old. God just says, no, it will. That's not, that's, that's not anything new, right? He doesn't give Abraham anything new there. But the text, strangely, says Abraham believed God after not receiving any new information. That's really weird. Uh, and it's that, that phrase, Abraham believed God and God counted it to him as righteousness. That becomes this sort of, uh, idea that spans all the way into the new Testament, right? As a, as a way to show Abraham's faith. But I think in the context of Genesis, it's really strange that Abraham believes God now after really receiving nothing new from God. And so, um, I would propose that what happens in verse six, the statement of Abraham's belief uh, is a sign of what God is going to do at the end of the chapter, right? So Abraham, it's, it, I, I think that's true because after it says that Abraham believes, Abraham asks God again for proof, right? So he says, oh, okay, Abraham believes. But then he asks God, Lord, how can I know that I will receive these things? How can I know that I'll take possession of the land? And it's after that question of how can I know that God, I think, really responds to Abraham, right? Up until now, God has been bringing promises and promises and promises. But after that question, how can I know God brings the covenant, right? And these, these two things, promises and covenants, I think that they're very, uh, I think they're very different, right? I ask my kids what the difference between a promise and a covenant is, and they usually don't get it. Uh, that's fine. But I, I think that I think that one of the differences, right, if you think about like marriage as kind of the most common sort of covenant that we have, right, the difference is that it's, it's binding. There's something outside of your word that forces you into this relationship, right? I also think that it's different than, uh, than a contract, right? You know, a contract, I tell the kids, like, I have a contract with the school, and part of that contract is that it's reevaluated every year. So every year they give me something and then I sign it and say that all in return do my job, right? A covenant's not like that. It's not like when I got married, we said, okay, in three to five years, we'll reevaluate this and we'll come back to the table and see if we're keeping up our ends of the deal. And if we're not, then, you know, that's not, that's not how a covenant works, right? It's, it's a relationship, it's a promise, but it's, it's binding, it's serious. It's something outside of yourself that ties you to it. So Abraham asks God, God, how can I know that these promises will come true? And God's response uh, is really weird, right? If, if you asked me for some kind of proof or some kind of covenant, and I said, oh, okay, right, bring me some animals, chop them in half, and lay them out in a line, that, that would be nothing, right? That wouldn't mean anything. Uh, you know, I have, have the kids in class, we we rearrange all our desks in, in order to kind of reenact whatever is going on here in Genesis 15. 
because it's really strange, right? God tells Abraham, okay, bring me a heifer, uh, a goat, a ram, a dove, a pigeon, chop them up, except for the birds, and then lay them out facing each other. Weird, right? I, it doesn't make any sense. But if we look at the text and look at Abraham's response, it seemed to be perfectly clear to him what was going on, right? He immediately does it. He seemed to know, oh, okay, great. We're, we're getting somewhere now. So what I think Abraham knows is that God is going to participate in the creation of a solemn covenantal oath with Abraham. And so Abraham does this. He, he lines up the pieces. And as far as we can figure from other ancient sources, the meaning of this uh, covenant is that the severed animals represent a kind of gruesome image of what each party of the covenant is swearing on penalty of. So in other words, by making the oath of the covenant and walking between the pieces of the animals, the two parties are saying, if I break my oath, if I break my promise, uh, I'll end up like these animals, right? They're basically swearing on their own death, that they'll, they'll, they'll be chopped up if they break their promises. That's kind of, it's kind of intense. It's kind of gross, right? I tell my kids, the Bible is not a book of nice stories, right? This is like, this is kind of intense stuff. Uh, and if you're paying attention to the text, the really wild thing is that Abraham does this and then Abraham falls asleep and doesn't participate in the making of the covenant, right? Instead, while he's sleeping, uh, God himself appears in the form of a blazing torch and a smoking cauldron. And the blazing torch and the smoking cauldron pass between the pieces of the animal. And the text says, and on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham done, right? Sealed. And I think what God is saying by having Abraham not participate, by having Abraham sleep and God himself doing this alone, is it's this shockingly vivid, concrete, kind of gruesome way of God saying, uh, if I break this promise to you, Abraham, I'll end up like these animals. The entire responsibility of fulfilling these promises is on me. It's all on God to make it happen. And God says that to Abraham in the most kind of bizarre, concrete, uh, vivid way, I think, that God can, right? God has nothing greater to swear to Abraham by, right? So he swears by himself. He swears by his own death that he will keep the promise he's made. Uh, so in this kind of strange, mysterious meal, Abraham brings his doubts and his fears to God, and God brings his very self, his very life bound to this covenant. So you might be thinking, okay, well, that's, that's neat, that's weird, that's interesting, but um, God has not appeared to me and asked me to sever some animals and made some kind of blood oath to me, right? Uh, but, but I would say that this is not the only strange covenantal meal in which God meets us in our doubts and frailty and brings his very life to the table. This is not the only covenantal meal in which God becomes lowly and in strikingly vivid 
maybe gruesome, concrete terms, stakes his relationship with humanity upon his own death. Because scripture tells us that on the night Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, take and eat, this is my body. And then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Friends, in the Lord's Supper, in the death of Christ, God meets us at a covenantal table just like he met Abraham. And just like Abraham, we are invited to the table along with our fears and our doubts and our struggles. And our comfort is, like Abraham's, nothing less than God himself. Nothing less than God's own life poured out in sacrifice and in love for us. That's our reassurance. So I want to close with a few reflection questions. Um, they're in the bulletin. Um, so I'm just going to read them and then have a moment to pause and, and think about them. The first question is, um, what are the doubts, fears, or struggles that you need to bring to God? Big things, little things. What do you need to express out loud to God? Think about it for a moment. reflect for a moment on the truth that in response to those struggles, God meets you in his own death. God meets you in his sacrifice for you in Christ. How might that truth meet you in your doubts and your fears and your struggles with God? And lastly, the Lord's covenantal meal is a communal meal. We take it together. Who in your community, either here at Wellspring or somewhere else, might you be able to reach out to in support in your doubts and struggles? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this truth that you, that you are a God who meets us in our struggles, who invites us into a deep, real relationship, a, a two-way relationship in which we can express our thoughts and our fears and our doubts to you and are met there by your love and by your Son. We're met there by the truth that you so deeply care for us, that you sacrificed yourself, 
out of love. And Lord, if you sacrificed your own life for us, help us to realize that there is nothing in our life that you do not care about. There's no place that you will not meet us. Help us to feel that, to understand that. We thank you for all of these truths. We pray this in your name. Amen.